The Women in Media podcast is proudly sponsored by Organic Traditions for spring 2024. Stay tuned for a special deal during this episode. I'm Sarah Burke, the host of the Women in Media podcast. In March 2020, the industry that I'm so lucky to be a part of grinded to a halt. Tours were canceled across the world, and we were told to stay home. Now, some may think of the music industry as simply the musicians you see performing on stage, but it's a giant web that extends from crew and tour managers to concert venues and promoters, radio and TV, associations, and nonprofit organizations. The woman I'll welcome to the podcast today has played an integral role in bringing live music back in Canada. The reason that we are among the last to reopen is because I believe that our business is, is grossly misunderstood. The live music industry pre-pandemic was contributing up to $3 billion in GDP and creating 72,000 jobs. If I have one more person use past tense talking about the pandemic, I get, I get very upset. Uh, but it's just it's just so important that we really do take a moment to, to think about what that actually means. Zero revenue since March 2020. My guest today is Aaron Benjamin, who is president and CEO of the Canadian Live Music Association and a very important role in the Canadian music industry and everything that you've had to deal with over the last two years. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for making time. Oh, thanks for asking me, Sarah. It's great to be here. I've had your name on my radar for uh, quite a while. You've been working with the Canadian Live Music Association since 2014. Did you ever back then think about preparing for something like this, like the industry grinding to a halt? Oh my gosh, no, no, no. Uh, uh, and if I had, I probably would have snapped myself out of it really quickly. Oh, Benjamin, that's never going to happen. Get a grip. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so the, the the Canadian Live Music Association Association was founded in 2014. So I've been here since the beginning. And the whole idea was to build from uh, up from the ground and bring the community together on common goals and challenges. And at the, at the beginning of this, you know, I've been in the music industry for a long time, but at the beginning of the work of this association, you know, our biggest challenge was uh, figuring out how to get people around the same table. Well, COVID solved that problem for us. Suddenly people need uh, leadership. They are more able and willing to trust uh, to join uh, a community, to put their hands up, to say, I need help, um, to establish relationships where they might not have gone before, to be open to collaborative partnerships where they might not have been before. It's a very territorial, proprietary, competitive industry. And pre-pandemic, um, you know, Wild West in a lot of wonderful ways. I mean, there's not, nowhere more exciting than Canada's live music industry, but enter the pandemic and our lack of, of cohesive relationship with governments at every level, et cetera, and and other types of relationships really meant that we had a steeper hill to climb uh, than some other sectors. Would you say that during the pandemic, um, the arts were on the map in a different way? I think people really started to understand for the first time that the crews and all of all of the people that might be behind the scenes, I think very quickly people started to recognize that these people have families they're supporting too, and that there are a number of people behind the scenes that work uh, to make sure that we get to see live music in Canada? Sure. And, you know, I, I wish that I could say emphatically yes, uh, but I, we still are every day is heavy lifting on the ecosystem piece for government and ensuring that uh, new and existing relief measures include the vast majority of the, of the actual ecology. And so it hasn't been easy to tell that story to make sure government understands what it takes to get an artist on a stage in front of an audience. Progress has been made, 
um, in the most recent round of emergency relief for the industry, the production community to a certain extent has been eligible to apply, but that is only since September 2021. Let me be, let me be clear this year, September 2021 wow. was the first time the production community could rep- apply for s- sector specific emergency relief. So um, it wasn't like people were, you know, in the in the early days when panic and chaos and was what our we were met with every morning when and if we could get out of bed to face the day um it's taken it's taken many conversations and so so much heavy lifting so many statistics so many emails there and so many zoom meetings to, to really help and but again this industry association is only seven or eight years old. I mean, we're just at the beginning of, of, of sharing our narrative uh, with people like the federal government. So it's uh, that's why associations have been the, uh, uh, I think when we look back on the pandemic, no matter what sector, associations are the, um, the un, unseen champions because uh, we've, been, we've been speaking for the individual voices who just can't be heard above the, above the din. So many, so many people in desperate need. And and uh, I always say that our number one goal through this pandemic is to make sure that our industry is never as hard hit again, should we have enough. So. Yeah, preparing for the future, for sure. Okay, well, I definitely want to get into like capacity limits and the frustrations. We're pretty far into the reopening plan, uh, but I think we need to start with your history in the music industry to understand where you come from in advocating uh, and, and championing Canadian live music. You have been a touring musician. Can you tell me a little bit about your past in music? Sure. Gosh, it's like several lifetimes ago. Uh, when I was five years old, I had a dream. I, t- I like to tell the story because I like to remind myself of when that time when I was an artist. But when I was five years old, I had a dream that I was a guitar player. And I went to my mom and I said, can I please have a guitar? I think I really want to learn how to play. And, you know, she resisted. Um, she's like, oh, well, well, you know, maybe. And I begged her and begged her. And she finally took me to this uh, store. I grew up in Toronto. She took me to a store on Bayview Avenue called Drum World, which had a few guitars, including a lot of, you know, in addition to all the drums that they had. And I, and she bought me a hundred dollar Dega guitar and <laughs> I had it for many, many years. And I immediately uh, started taking lessons and learning guitar and, and I uh, um, began writing my own songs. And, and it really led to, um, you know, always performing, always performing. I, I performed in theater, I, I performed music. And eventually when I graduated university, I um, ended up moving to Northern Ontario, which is a bit of a longer story, but uh, got a gig at a local bar in town every Sunday night. And people actually came and wanted to hear me play. And it, that was sort of the dawn of the, my, I don't know, I, I guess I realized that I had something to say as an artist. I thought I did. And, and I started, um, you know, making records and touring and building my relationships broadly across the music industry, which ultimately led to, in a, in a more circuitous route to, to the work I do now. What made you want to step into a role in advocating and championing for artists? If you had put it to me that way, I would have said, oh gosh, that's not me. No, thanks. But I was a proud member of the folk community in Ontario. I'd actually won, there were three recipients of a songwriting contest in 1996 of the songwriting contest that the Ontario Council of Folk Festivals had and the prize was you got to come to their annual conference and showcase for all these artistic directors. And that was really a TSN turning point for me in my career because I was like, wow, there are all these festivals. I had no idea. I was a kid. So 
I got involved with that organization and eventually, um, because I was such a squeaky, annoying wheel, um, ended up on the board of directors because, you know, that's where you put those people. <laughs> you, you know, you have an opinion, you got to be on a board. So hey, you said you had it. something to say, so I get it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so um, uh, during my time as a board member, uh, the one person who was paid a couple of hours a week, there, there were no full-time staff at this thing. It was a very volunteer, community-driven organization. Um, but the one person who was being paid a couple of hours was... Uh, uh, got quite ill and sadly ended up passing away and, and the board needed to pay someone to do the work of convening and, and some of the other sort of more administrative stuff. And, and so they, my, my board chair and vice chair took me out into the hall at a board meeting and said, um, we, we think you might be a good replacement for her name is Judy. And at the time I was running my own record label. I was helping another startup record label. I was a, clearly had emerged as a very hands-on DIY uh, artist, independent, fiercely independent, who had been driving her own career. And I was as well known for that as I was for like all the hair I used to have in my loud voice and my songs, you know, very sort of, uh, sort of female oriented lyrics, like, you know, um, gosh, I'm thinking back to all the songs that I wish I hadn't written. But, Who were you inspired um, by artist wise too? I need to know. <laughs> oh, really? Like I was a huge, huge Joni Mitchell fan, still am. And, and um, big, well, a lot of my contemporaries at the time, like Sarah McLaughlin, Katie Lang, Holly Cole, I got to open for her once. That was nice. amazing. Um, but so, you know, so I became the, the, in that meeting, like uh, they asked me to, to um, work for the organization and, I, and they said, you know, you can be the office manager. And, and I, without skipping a beat, I just, the, these words came out of my mouth. I said, well, I, I'll do it, but you have to call me the executive director. Yes. I don't even know Sarah, where that came from. Like to this day, I think it's the funniest story because they were like, okay, whatever, Aaron, whatever, who cares? Just get the work done. And, and ultimately what happened was I worked for the, well, we'll call it Folk Music Ontario as it's known today for about seven or eight years and grew the organization exponentially because all it needed was a, truly a warm body and someone empowered to lead and bring the community together. And, uh, but it was really my hidden kind of, I think I have two um, good qualities that make me a strong association leader. And one of those, I'm insanely organized. Uh, to a fault, like really, like it's a bit OCD. Um, I'm a, I've always been just like super A-type, okay? And Got it. I, I, again, to a fault. And then uh, my ability, like I'm a people person. I love I love networking. I love bringing people around a table. The, the harder the challenge, the bigger the challenge, right? And I love to to see if we can't figure things out and find our way together because I can, I'm, i I don't know. I'm not some, I'm certainly not a visionary, uh, but I can see a clear path ahead when we can collaborate effectively and what, what that can mean. Um, uh, and your cat together. is on your board of directors at home. Can I let my stupid yeah. cat out? Yeah, yeah. Oh my, God, <laughs> oh my God, that's my cat, Jeremy. And my dog, Charlie, is out for her, her walk Look. right now. So hopefully. I feel like when I hear about like roles on a board or, um, you know, volunteering for an association, there's usually like no money involved because it's like volunteer positions. So did you have any apprehension in getting involved in this way? Uh, like, it sounds like you just said what you needed and you were like executive director and pay up. But I know that that's hard for a lot of people to get involved in this way, even if they crave to. You know, it's funny that the other part of the story that I didn't tell was they said, we have $5,000 in the bank. That's all the money the association had. Uh, and it's yours if you can get, if you can do the work. And I was a full-time artist at that point. I was like, $5,000. Oh my God, are you kidding me? This is my inside voice going, 
what I could do with that. I could pay my rent and I could do. Yeah. So look, look, I, yeah, I started at $5,000 a year at Book Music Ontario. And when I left, I was making more than that. Um, but you know, it, it's true. The volunteer aspect, I mean, look, I, I sit on many boards uh, currently and I have done over the years. It's a very satisfying way to give back. It's a, it's a great um, community opportunity to be a part of, um, you know, whatever it is, if it's in, in the music industry or elsewhere, certainly um, serving, for example, on the board of Unison, the Unison Benevolent Fund today for me is a great source of pride and um, one of the most important things I think I could be doing um, in, in, in addition to my paid work. And those are, you know, that's paying it forward. And, and I think that's the best part of us as a society when we, when we do that. And I'm happy to do it. And I do it as often as I can. I couldn't do it if I didn't also have, you know, I need to be paid to do my actual work, but uh, yes. making time for volunteer work is, has always been and will always be important to me. I think there's a, there's a fine line between the two and, you know, so much of what drives people in our industry is, is the passion. So it doesn't always come down to the money, but sometimes you got to raise your hand, right? Which it sounds like you've had a little bit of experience doing. So uh, 2014, we'll go back to the like founding of uh, the Canadian Live Music Association. What did you see at that point as the biggest uh, like weakness and the biggest opportunity? Our biggest challenge was really getting people to buy into the idea that an association could make our business better. Like, that's just a no brainer if you work in any other industry, even the rest of the music industry. You look at some of our sister associations, it's been around for 40, 50 years. They drive the agenda with federal government. They have programs that, that their members can apply to that reflect their actual needs and business priorities. And live music, with the exception of festivals, and we can unpack that if you want to get super specific, but the for profit music industry had no pre-existing relationship with government, really, certainly not in, in, uh, uh, in sort of in the, in the cultural heritage space. Um, so that was our greatest challenge was to say, look, like we, we can be, we can, we are going to tell our, our story. We are going to crunch the numbers. We're going to talk about how big we are. We're going to talk about our contribution to GDP. We're going to talk about the number of jobs we create as a sector, and we will be able to therefore influence cultural and fiscal policy in this country. Um, and so one of our greatest strengths was, we put artists on stage for fans. We, we make memories. We impact the quality of life of the people living in this country. We, we do good things. We, we change lives with the power of music. Um, and that is our greatest calling card, our number one asset. Um, and, uh, you know, something, and it's a super, it has been, and it will be again, a super cool, fun industry to work in. I mean, it's just, People love the music industry because it seems, you know, flashy and exciting. And, and it, it, can, it can be. It, it certainly is. In addition to that, our greatest strength is, is our, our people, our community are amazing. They're, like you say, they're passionate, committed. You don't get into the live music industry to get rich. Certainly some, <laughs> some people have. but I You mean, don't not, get into radio to get rich either, let me tell you. Right? <laughs> you do it because you love it. And so many of our, our small venue promoters and owners and managers and venues in general, concert promoters, festivals, these are folks who grew up loving music. They're people who love music and they wanted to get into the business of sharing that love and curating that love and, and, and inspiring other people to love the artists they love. And so these are, that's why the ones who are left standing at this point, I mean, you want resiliency, look no further than the live music industry in this country. Oh man. Crazy to think about what the live music industry has gone through. Okay. So we're at a really interesting time in the pandemic where it's like, okay, we're coming through the fourth wave in Ontario, at least, you know, things are opening up, capacity limits are being lifted. 
our venues can finally return to 100% capacity standing. This is concerts the way we used to do them. Finally sitting there hearing that announcement. How did you feel? Well, uh, amazing. Now, I was sitting in my car uh, about to walk into a conference in Ottawa, the first conference of my pandemic and first conference in such a long time. Uh, you formerly very, very much a professional conference goer. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, trying to trying to sort of get some emails out there and share it with our community very quickly. I have been in touch with the minister, uh, Minister Lisa McLeod, um, uh, in advance of this, hoping that she was going to return to cabinet to make this recommendation again. You know, I, I knew that 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 it was going to if it was going to work, it was going to be that day. And so I was sort of eagerly waiting for news if it was going to come at all. And, and it did as I was pulling into the parking lot of this conference. So I sat in my car for 20 minutes, bashing out an email to the industry. Oh my gosh, if, if only people knew how many times I'd done that <laughs> for like grocery shopping and, and sending an email to, to the national live music sector. <laughs> so like all of us just on the fly best we can, but, um, but, you know, thrilled it was the right decision for government. I mean, we've already got this, first of all, it was basically three weeks early. So the, we knew this was going to happen on November 15th. Turns out they bumped it up. That's fantastic. It gives us three weeks more to plan, potentially three weeks more of work. But of course, you know, show you don't flip a switch and have a show. That's been one of our arguments all along. So I, I was excited. I was excited to bring the news to the Ontario industry. Um, it, it gives us an opportunity to roll up our sleeves in some other sectors of, in or, sorry markets in Canada um, to show other provincial governments what Ontario, what the decision was here. And um, yeah, really excited to be able to, I mean, kind of surreal, to be honest. And I, I've said this in media ever since the announcement. Um, I, I, I'm coming off as sounding very cautious and almost not excited because I refuse to sort of let myself go fully. It's part of what comes with leading an industry 19 months into the biggest crushing crisis of our time. I just can't be, I just my expectations remain low. Mm-hmm. And I think that I have to, I just, I can't flip my own switch and go, oh my God, it's over. Like it isn't over. We have to stay true to what we know about this pandemic. We have to stay vigilant. We have to encourage people to get vaccinated. Please go and get vaccinated if you haven't and you're listening to this and you care even a little bit about live music. Thank you, public service announcement. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to stay the course and hope that this n- n- new move uh, results in in a truly permanent reopening of the industry in the province. Okay, and I do have to ask, just because there were, you know, a lot of observations that could be made from a live entertainment standpoint about uh, the frustrations leading up to this announcement that we're talking about, and just how, you know, how could you have a, a Toronto Raptors game or a Toronto Maple Leafs game, but, you know, our, our musicians can't be on the stage playing in the same capacity? Any thoughts that you would want to share about those frustrations leading up to this point? Well, sure. I mean, this was, I mean, it, yeah, it was challenging to see major sports entertainment evolve and the small business, the impact on small business, just, you know, more difficult by the day. And I think the government, look, they don't have a rule book either. And I, t- I try to be as generous as I can be with government because none of us have been through this before. This goes back to the absence of, of, a, of a leadership voice in this industry for, for many years the reason that we are among the last to reopen is because I believe that our business is, is grossly misunderstood. Like who we are and what we do is just misunderstood. And it's been very much what's driven our journey over the last 20 months is explaining who we are and what we do and what it looks like from the inside out. So look, I mean, we're, we're thrilled to see the major venues open, the larger venues open. Um, and we, we lobbied for that as well. I mean, it's essential that they open and uh, they're very much part of our family. 
you know, I, I think the government may be quick to say that they've got more advanced uh, HVAC technology. Uh, but, you know, this is the way this thing has unfolded. And if I was in the restaurant world, I might have a similar story. Like not, not everything has appeared logical or fair. Yeah. Um, and that's when you you lean on. I think what's the important part of this is, you know, you build relationships with government and you work together. You find your champions and they help tell your story internally. And, and you, you know, you just lean in and try and try and get what you need for the businesses who are on their knees. And it's been it's absolutely been frustrating. Gosh, what, what do I want to say? I mean, it's been it, it's been completely head scratching at times, but that isn't new. And I think that we have to just accept that the rules are being made in ways that not all of us would do it because Ontario has made, has done a lot of things right. And whether we like it or not, we're in a good place. Well, obviously we like it. We like it that we're in a healthy, much healthier position than several other provinces in this country. And so we have to say, okay, like we don't, I don't like that our businesses have you know seen zero revenue since March, 2020. I believe we haven't received enough emergency support. I believe that there are things that we could and should do differently. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we never go back to being closed again. And that comes down to, and I'm just, if I get, if I can say this 10 times um, through this interview with you, Sarah, I will say it, that comes down to vaccinations and people being vaccinated. We need people to be vaccinated. We need people to be double vaccinated um, in order to make sure that we remain open. It's, it's not always easy to be the loudest voice in the room. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the big guys had to get something done. And at the end of the day, it benefits all of us. It just took a little bit of extra time. So there's no rule book here. And um, it became very obvious kind of quickly. Let's face it. It was only a matter of days until this got changed. And government went, okay, that we made, you know, either we, either we didn't have time to make that decision and now we do, or we made the wrong decision, whatever it was. Um, yeah, it got fixed. So not easy. None of this has been easy, especially for small, especially for small business. You mentioned earlier putting plans in place to make sure that if we ever have another situation like this, where the industry grinds to a halt, that there's a better plan in place. So what's still missing? What are those things that you're working on right now to prepare for that next time? Well, I, I, I think what we're, we're doing and we've been doing since day one, and, and it's a never ending process is building relationships with government and explaining who we are, what we do, why we matter. Um, so that we can be entrenched in that cultural and fiscal policy that I was talking about. So when a government's like, you know, has to, we all knew from the beginning that we couldn't save everybody. And that's still the case. And that certainly, you know, tourism, tra travel, hospitality, live events, what we, what we now know is the hardest hit sectors, which we are fully in. Um, uh, you know, the gov government hasn't been able to save everybody. But uh, what, what I would hope for next time is that we don't have to work so hard to be included. In the beginning of this, in, in March 2020, you know, we were working with the Canadian government to say live music, live music, live music. And, and they were very used to dealing with the recorded music industry and, and, and everybody else in the, in the music industry except live because we didn't have that pre-existing relationship. One of the first things that happened through Canadian Heritage was the um, existing clients got a lump sum of emergency cash to get them through, but only if you're an existing client. So mm -hmm. we... So um, it eventually got to the point where live music was being considered, but we had to lean in extremely hard. And I think our colleagues in government would agree now that we don't, you know, it's too bad that that had to happen. For a moment there, I will just say it. I didn't know for sure if live music 
was going to be able to access any emergency support because it didn't look like, again, it was chaotic. It was crazy making. We didn't know what we didn't know. So madly people like, ah, everybody needs money. And we just pushed some stuff out. But some people who didn't need money as urgently got it. And the people who, who need it today are still waiting. Um, and so this is what we need to address. So look, I don't, I don't, I, I want to say this to you unequivocally, our friends in government, I've never seen people work harder, both elected officials and public service ever. I mean, the people and they, they have it tough, right? Because people love to hate the government, whatever. Uh, I, I just can't speak highly enough of all, every single person that I've had the pleasure and, and honor to work with through this nightmare. It's been very hard. They have so many people to answer to. They have so much administration around every decision that they make um, that it is brought and they have billions of stakeholders at them every day. So uh, I think when you step back and you really take a hard look, I think I, unequivocally, I can say everyone has done the very best that they could do. Um, but moving forward, uh, we need to make sure that the industry is understood and that the people who in the food chain enable that show to happen to facilitate that artist connection with the fan, uh, that they are that they are seen and and felt. And and that's you know, that is the that is the thing that we have that we are focused on in, in a kind of a subtle way. It's not like I wake up every morning and say, OK, that next pandemic, we're going to be ready <laughs> I kind of say I will not be working in the music industry. We're in the next pandemic. Uh, gosh, let's hope that never happens. I'm going to knock on wood right now. Um, but but honestly, and you know, we've all learned so much about collaboration and partnerships. And it's a cliche at this point. It's one of the best, most important takeaways from this experience. It's Sarah Burke here, the host of the Women in Media podcast and the founder of the Women in Media Network. Yep, now there's an entire network. I've been working really hard to get things off the ground. And what would I do without coffee? I can barely function without it. But I feel much better about putting a coffee that's full of superfoods in my body. I've been loving the Focus Fuel Instant Mushroom Coffee from Organic Traditions. And of course, all the ingredients are organic. It's packed with lion's mane mushroom to support memory, focus, and cognitive function, adaptogens to nourish your brain, and MCT powder to boost your energy and improve mental clarity. And before you make that face, no, it doesn't taste like mushrooms. It tastes like coffee actually better than most. There are hints of cinnamon and vanilla, and it is absolutely delicious. Did I mention it also just won Best New Mushroom Enhanced Beverage in a 2024 Brand Spark survey? Want to try the Focus Fuel Mushroom Coffee yourself? Head to organictraditions.com and use the promo code WOMENINMEDIA20 for 20% off at checkout. And by the way, that applies for the entire site, not just the coffee. You're welcome. Just add water and get at it. Yeah, I think whatever sector you work in, I'm just going to use this as an example. Someone might have something to say about Doug Ford and the way he's done something in Ontario. As a human, look at what managing anything during a pandemic actually takes. At the end of the day, there's so much information that's been changing rapidly on a day-to-day basis that every sector has had to keep up with in their own way. I do think it's remarkable. Anyone in a leadership position uh, during something like this, what they've had to endure. Is there maybe an example of whether you want to mention names in a partnership or not, that's completely up to you, but like a real tangible example of something that, you know, the government um, didn't see. Well, sure. I mean, the, 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 what I was just talking about in terms of the early days in conversation with Canadian heritage around sector specific emergency support. I mean, that was not coming to life. 
also I'll talk about the hardest hit coalition for a second. And that is, is I've spent more time. I've said this often working with airlines and hotels, uh, the travel and tourism industry than I have with way more. In fact, I barely talk to the music industry anymore. It's really the hardest hit sectors because a lot of, a lot of folks working in the music industry are fine, right? They haven't been hard hit like we have in live. So working with um, the Hardest Hit Coalition, which has been led by two amazing women, Beth Potter, the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada, and Susie Greinel, the President and CEO of the Hotel Association of Canada, brought together over 600 um, companies, organizations, and associations like the Canadian Live Music Association, hundreds, I don't know if 600 is quite right, but many, 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 representing tens of thousands of workers, um, to, to basically organize a conversation with the federal government around what we actually need in, in hard hit. Uh, and just the other day, the federal government, the newly reelected liberal government, as they said in their campaign, have now promised to, to uh, provide additional support to hard hit sectors, and, and that is us. Um, and so that is really, really important. And now we work on the, what the details look like there. So from a, from, a, from a fan perspective, knowing that venues will continue to be able to access something like a wage subsidy or rent relief to, in it, to stay operational is fundamental. We understand why those programs are continuing. A lot of people think, and I get it, uh, you know, we, we can't keep spending, we can't keep spending. Well, for, the, for those who are forced into uh, lockdowns or, or, or restrictions that diminish their ability to do business, um, these supports are absolutely necessary. They're fundamental. Otherwise, we we face, and I've said this publicly many times, the complete eradication and extinction of an industry. Mm-hmm. If we can't keep these, especially like, let's look at the venues for a second, because we, we have spent a lot of time working with the venues. If we can't keep those venues operational, uh, artists have no places, no place to play. And then this, the, the, that goes to if we can't kit that venue out with production gear, there's no venue, like the venue can't put on a show. So those production companies become elemental. If we don't have someone to run the board, we have no one to do the show, then we can't have, the show doesn't exist and on and on and on. So, I mean, I think, I think it's just, I think it's, I think it's very, I think it's really important that people stop for a minute. And, and this goes to every sector. We understand a little bit more maybe about the healthcare sector and how, how brutal this has been on them and the layers and layers that facilitate access to an ICU bed. Um, and I'm not comparing the live music industry in terms of urgency, just in terms of structure, that ecologies exist and, it, and uh, these uh, ongoing support programs that we are so grateful for, I can't tell you, um, that, will, that will enable us to continue, even at a limp, um, are, are just so essential to our future so that we can be part of, and this is the really important part, a bigger picture rebuild and recovery. Uh, live music, uh, the live music industry pre-pandemic was contributing up to three billion in GDP and sub- creating seventy-two thousand jobs. We can have real, real opportunity and potential here, and that the future of this industry, because it was on its way to the most explosive building year ever. Twenty twenty was going to be the biggest year in live music the world had ever seen. Uh, we can get back there, and we're ju- we need a, a a bit of help to do that, and hopefully a real understanding from. Um, Canadians and 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 others, um, just how bad it's been in this industry. If I have one more person use past tense talking about the pandemic, I get I get very upset because I'm like, you are it, this is not over, um, and it won't be over for a long time for a lot of us. Um, but it's just it's just so important that we really do take a moment to to think about what that actually means. Zero revenue since March 2020. What is your favorite music venue in? I'm going to oh. say Ontario or Canada. 
You can't. You're not allowed to ask me that one. Why not? You're you've also been a touring musician. You got to have a favorite spot. I did just have a site tour of the of Massey Hall and, and it's rent in its current state of renovation and it's going to open. It is going to be glorious. But I also love the Black Sheep in Wakefield, Quebec, of one of one of the most wonderful listening rooms, small venue. Uh, beautiful Paul Symes who runs that looking out at the river just 20 minutes to half an hour north of Ottawa. Um, I love, uh, oh, I loved, of course, I love the horseshoe. I you spend a lot of time playing at Say What um, in Toronto as an artist. That was one of my favorite places to play. I love the Townhouse Tavern, basically where I cut my teeth as an artist in Sudbury in the very early days. Uh, I love the Savoy Theatre um, out east. Gosh, uh, and I, I, I have a, obviously I live in Ottawa. I have a, a huge fondness for the National Arts Center and, and the various spaces there. I just saw the amazing Feist in her new show, which is mind blowing, sitting on stage at Southern Hall in a very unique. Uh, she was in the uh, center, right? Yeah, uh, in the round. Yeah, so the audience is in the round. Anyway, great. I mean, just, just you know, look, I, I, I've been lucky enough to see a lot of. Uh, and, and I'm not even talking about festivals that I love. Oh my gosh, Blues Fest and uh, so, so many festivals in this um, Calgary Folk Fest, which I've never been to is on my bucket list and others. But, uh, you know, we are, we are very, we are very spoiled in this country. When you start to think about all the amazing spaces, places and people behind this industry, just mm-hmm. where it's just so many amazing, amazing spots. Way to try and trick me though, Sarah. Uh, yeah, I know. And she, she lists off like 20 venues and I'm like, okay. Um, in reflecting on the last two years and the work that you've been doing, uh, what has been the toughest moment for you? I think I actually did say this in the last episode that went out of this podcast. I called you like the heartbeat of the Canadian live music industry because you're that voice. But yeah, what's a, a moment that you know that the heartbeat was getting a little slower for a second? Well, first of all, thank you for those kind words. Um, something I have resisted from day one has been to normalize the pace. The, the, when I realized that this was the way it was going to be from, for now on, you know, like that every day would be back to back to back to back, that I would have to text my kids from my bedroom upstairs to bring me food and water. Uh, and, and look, it's lightened up a little, but I think for me, and that was, that was probably, you know, we launched this amazing campaign called for the love of live, which has been a great tool. And I, I don't know if I can pick an exact moment, but I, but that campaign was responsible for a lot and, uh, and helped us leverage some, some of the se- sector specific money I'm talking about in the federal, in the spring budget from the federal government. Um, and it was, so I don't know, maybe it was after that. And I sort of thought, okay, we've got, we've got this money. We can take a breath. And then, and then we, we still had, when I step back, we have so many, we have insurance, an insurance crisis in the sector. We have a debt issue now that we have to deal with. We have a labor shortage. When I realized um, that this was the way it was going to be, this was the gig now, um, I think I was just like, oh my God, how can I keep doing this? Like, I'm going to die. The And I don't, you know, look, I'm managing and uh, I, there are things that I, I make sure that I do for myself, but I, I've, it's taken a physical toll. It's taken a toll on my family. It's taken, uh, uh, it's aged me remarkably. Like any, I mean, I, I know this is a podcast, but I'm only 22. <laughs> if there's any video clips, I'm not 22. I'm a lot older than that, but I certainly <laughs> feel like I've, I feel like I've aged about 50 years. 
So I think that that for me was the hardest. It was just like, oh my God, how can this be the way it is forever now? And I don't see it letting up. So I had a decision to make um, can, because I feel so incredibly passionate and loyal to my community. But I also feel like as a human being on the planet, I have, I have a responsibility to do whatever I can. And what I can do right now is lead this sector along with many other smart people. Um, and that is why I'm on the planet right now. And if I can just continue to see it through that lens and feel like I, this is my place, um, then that is that's that enables me to keep moving. And uh, and I am very grateful for this community and for this job and for all the people in my team, especially. I have an amazing team, Maddie and Nicole and Melanie and Caitlin um, and the others who who really support me in, in, in many ways. And then finally, I would say, just in terms of this insane pace and how to reconcile that this is the reality, there are examples of incredible leaders. I named two of them, Beth Potter and Susie Grinell, who don't I barely know, uh, but I've watched them and, and, and huge inspiration for me. And then people in my own industry, especially uh, my, my, the executive on my board of directors, people like Jesse Kumgai, Roy Thompson-Massey, and Patty Ann and Wayne, Patty Ann, Ticketmaster, Wayne, Saronic at Live Nation, Nick Farkas at Evenco, who helped me um, and ha have been dealing with just, you know, this is their, their livelihoods. And uh, it has been, uh, yeah, I guess it's, I guess, I guess that's it. It's about making a decision that you, that the people that you love and uh, that they, they help you and you help them. And, and you've just agreed quietly that if you're still standing at this point, you can probably get it done. Hmm. And now let's turn that to your proudest moment. Um, you did mention, you know, the spring budget. Uh, and that, I remember when that announcement came out and I remember having tears in my eyes. Is that your proudest moment of the pandemic? It's definitely uh, in the top five. And because there, there's been so, there's so many, many amazing things that have happened, but I have to say to see, and I'm going to get choked up saying this out loud. That's okay. Seeing the words live music venues in a federal budget like live music venues. <laughs> Honestly, you know, they're from where we were, and I've already we've talked about it, from where we were in the beginning in spring 2020, where it was like we're not, you know, we're not going to help live music to 70 million in the budget. Now it's a drop in bucket for a lot of other industries, but for us, you know, it it's we're, you know, when it starts flowing, which it hasn't yet, but it will. Uh, uh, it, it will really make a difference. And, and that was, that was just so that was emblematic of all of the storytelling, all of the, all of the work that every single member of the live music industry had done because it has taken a village to get the message through. And so that was, that was quite the day. Out of all the boards that you sit on, whether we're talking about the Ontario Ministry of Heritage, Tourism and Cultural Industries, you've served on many boards in the past. Um, have you always felt confident as a, a woman in the room? <laughs> no no oh no gosh sorry I mean but it I would say it's an excellent question um no no gosh I still feel like I'm a total like how did I get there I'm you know what I had a conversation with someone I really respect recently who's a, a woman a very very accomplished recipient of the Order of Canada amazing amazing woman here in Ottawa who I who I know and and she, and she she said oh you remind me of myself 10 years ago and I didn't you know, I just wasn't sure if I really knew what I was talking about and all the things I am better than I used to be um, because I kind of care less what people think of me. And, you know, gosh, we could unpack this for hours. When no one really cares about how, you know, <laughs> what Aaron Benjamin thinks about her, how people think about her. But but 
I mean, I didn't, I didn't go to music industry school. I didn't go to like, I always feel like somehow, like I never had the right education or whatever, but let's take, let's look at the Ottawa board of trade, which is relatively new for me. I mean, that's the business community in the city of Ottawa. And I, I, I was recruited to, for that kind of, I was asked to consider to stand for election because I think that people felt that I might have something to bring to a local table. And I felt really insecure about that because I, I sort of feel like I circulate at a national level and, and don't know as many in the business community here. But when I stopped to think of it and I had conversations about why they felt I was a good fit, uh, they shared stuff with me that wasn't, that's really kind of assuaged some of my insecurities. So after the last, during this pandemic and learning things I have about myself and about the world, like I legitimately have no time to waste worrying about that stuff anymore. So I think I'm just coming through this, the, 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 maybe the last sort of, um, flakes of the lack of self-confidence and self-doubt female or leader or all of the things that we stress about we might not be good enough or we don't know the answers honestly if I if I and I will if I continue to make mistakes or fail you know spectacularly I I know how to learn from these things and I and I and that gives me just like solid confidence like we're not perfect male, female, or otherwise, um, it is a challenge to be a human being on the planet these days. And um, I think if we just get out of bed in the morning, uh, try it with a commitment to do some good in the world, that the universe will, will guide us and uh, through the, the, the lumps and the bumps and the warts and all. I would encourage anyone who's listening um, to seek out these amazing opportunities to volunteer and give back and um, or join board boards of directors, whether they're paid or volunteer, and, and try to make a contribution that way to hone your leadership skills and and to to contribute. It is a really meaningful way to give back to our community. You have mentioned some women that I I know you respect and uh, are honored to work with. Um, I do like to give a little space at the end of the podcast to nominate you know some guests to come on in the future. Uh, if there's anyone that you haven't mentioned yet that you want to tell me a little more about, I would love to hear right now. Oh my gosh, it's a long list. Um, you know, one of the one of the people who uh, I, some people will, will listen to the, what I'm going to say next and maybe roll their eyes, but I I defy you to find a stronger advocate for our industry than our minister in Ontario, Lisa McLeod, who has. So look, I'm Aaron Benjamin, President and CEO of the Canadian Live Music Association. I am one association leader. The minister in Ontario has I don't know, 150 Aaron Benjamins to deal with. Oh, and she's got every hard hit sector in her portfolio, airlines, major league, like pro sports, entertainment, community sports, uh, tourism, travel, hospitality, and live events. And, um, it hasn't, you know, she, I can't imagine a harder job. She's been an amazing champion and advocate, and this is not political pandering from Aaron Benjamin. I have deep, deep, profound respect for every elected official who has managed to, um, d- develop and uh, as she has genuine, authentic, uh, meaningful relationships with some of her stakeholders. And then we are very grateful for her work. Um, another person who I think is, is changing the world is the new president and CEO at Factor, Meg Simsek. Um, Meg is an, she's an amazing, very smart appointment there. And I think Meg is a visionary. And I think that Meg uh, uh, will and Meg's leadership will make a real difference to the lives of people working in live music mm-hmm. in time. Um, and I'm really excited to see what she's going to do there. And then finally, I would, I would say, gosh, man, I, I mean, I could go on and on about this, like the amazing women working in the industry. 
Um, but if I, if I wanted to pick one more, if I could, I think I would pick, I think I would pick Lisa Zabitnew, um, owner of the Phoenix Concert Theater in Toronto so and much. the Bronson Center in Ottawa. And Lisa is, I mean, you know, when you, there, there are, there are female venue owners and female venue operators and managers, um, they're, they're out there. And for me, Lisa is not just the, you know, because she's female, because she's badass and she hasn't given up and she's tough and she leads and she's smart. And she's just, she is the, she is the, the, uh, she's emblematic of what a concert promoter is, you know, feisty and, and brilliant and so passionate about the artists. And she is just, she's just never given up and she has had it tough. Man. Uh, she could tell you the numbers, but they are not good. And she's still standing. Oh, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I do believe that you are the heartbeat of the Canadian live music industry. And I'm so glad that we got some time to talk. Likewise, Sarah, I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's a really um, nice break in my day to be able to do something that feels good. So thank you <laughs> for being a bright spot. Some of my favorite bands are getting on stage this month and saying, I haven't played a show in 500 days. Can you imagine not going to work for 500 days? Think about all the people behind the scenes that are saying that same thing. My point is, it's time to buy a ticket to see one of your favorite bands at one of your favorite venues, because if we've learned anything over the last two years, it's how much we took live music for granted. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Aaron Benjamin, for everything you have done to bring live music back in Canada. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's us luck? This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.